Okay, let's look at um, the Bible as to what we've got, our 66 books. And first of all, and actually later on, this helped us even appreciate a lot of things uh, about it, that there was no inspired person that sat down and said, these 66 books belong in the Bible, and, and that is it, okay? This book became 66 books as a result of examination of the books and the materials and the way that they were handled. Now, in looking back at the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Law of Moses is really the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And each of those books were not given, none of them were given a name, okay? They, we give them a name. Genesis is in the beginning. It means the beginning. Exodus means the departure, when they depart and leave the land of Egypt. Leviticus, because that part deals with the Levitical priesthood. And Numbers, that's when all the Israelites got numbered for war, to go into the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy, the word do, the root meaning of the word is the second, and it's the second stating of the law. And the law that's given in Exodus is restated in Deuteronomy, therefore the second stating of the law, and explained. And so Moses did not sit down and say, I'm writing book number one, book number two, three, four, and five. Moses just simply wrote this material that's in Genesis through Deuteronomy, and we come along and divide it up into five distinct books and give it a name. But he just simply wrote the material itself. Now, some of the material that Moses put down, he was eyewitness of. A lot of that material came from documents that had been around longer than Moses, go all the way back to Adam and Eve. For example, when it comes to even the, uh, the uh, creation story, Genesis 1-2, there was a creation stories circulating all over the known world. Uh, the Babylonians have a creation story very similar. And when, if you look at the various creation stories and then look at Genesis, you can see a whole lot of similarities. And then you can also see that there is a sublimeness and purity in Genesis that's not in the other. Uh, it's just, and this is true of any, uh, all the way through this, uh, uh, the first five books, you're going to find material that you'll find that was going around in any number of sources. That uh, I mean, after all, when Adam was created, and then he had his children, well, you know that, and you know how long Adam lived, well, you know that everybody got told about that first week and how God did it and everything like that, and that as man scattered, he took that information with him everywhere he went. And so that that, that information was out, and the very fact that we have these similar creation stories and all is evidence of a central source and all. The flood's the same thing. Uh, every single solitary people that you'll read about anywhere, if their history goes back far enough, it'll go back to the time of a great flood. Now, this is true of the Babylonians, it's true of the Sumerians, it's true of the Aztec Indians, the Maya Indians, anywhere, any people. Well, this again is evidence that there was a flood and that uh, it's hard to even explain other than that that everybody's history goes back to that. And so this flood took place, and then as man spread throughout the earth, he took the message with him. So I'm saying that when you read the account of the flood there, uh, as Moses looks back and writes, there's accounts all over. So you and I can only speculate at all of the written material that Moses had access to. But he, in other words, that he needed the ability to know what was true, 
and, and what had, uh, had air incorporated into it and everything like that, but he had a lot of material at his source, just like Luke did when he wrote the Gospel according to Luke, and let you know that he's got a lot of material uh, as his source as he writes. So when we say that Moses wrote this now, this is important, because the liberal scholar, the one we call a liberal, comes along and he says, well, wait a minute, uh, Moses could not have written this, and there's been these, this debate all down through the centuries. He says that uh, part of this is written in one vocabulary, part of it's in a, another vocabulary, and we actually have several different writers in, in, in these books, you know, and several vocabularies involved, and, and we can show a connection here that uh, the word God is used in this section as such and such, you know, maybe, maybe Elohim or something like that, you know. Then we have uh, Jehovah over here. And we have a, and so we divide, they divide all of this material up and say that, and then the, that Moses couldn't have written it, uh, that it's the work of more than one person, and then the conservative for years and still uh, come back and said, yes, he did, because the Bible said that Moses wrote it. Well, the, the truth is, and this is something that's interesting to me all the way through here, that although I would tend to be very conservative, that there's a tendency, if you are conservative, to think the liberals are a bunch of wild people. You know, they just don't not even concerned about truth. And of course, the liberals look at the conservatives as people that uh, they're, they're not open-minded at all. But generally, my experience has been when I look at the arguments and all, that there's some truths coming from both ways, and there's some biases in both ways. I do not believe that Moses, that the Holy Spirit dictated everything in those in that book to Moses. Moses had a lot of documents. And then he had what he saw with his own eyes. And then if he used others to help him write and dictated some of the material and things like that, you would have had that also. I know it was the custom, just like today, uh, if a businessman is, is sending a letter someplace, he just dictates it, and the secretary puts it down and sends it. And I know that was true all through the Bible times, that uh, Paul didn't write most of his letters. Uh, that, and, and same with read Jeremiah. Jeremiah did not write Jeremiah. Uh, he dictated it to Baruch, and Baruch was the one that wrote it. And so Moses is responsible, it's best to say that Moses is responsible for that material in the form that we have it now. That he is the one that compiled this and added to it, and God gave the commandments through Moses and set up the law of Moses. In other words, what came directly from Moses was the law of Moses. And then Moses is responsible for pulling this other material, so it really shouldn't bother anybody that you've got several personalities and vocabularies and everything like that. Uh, the whole point is, is what is there, is it the truth? And is it history? And, and that's the only thing that we really care about. But there's no need or no obligation to prove that all of this was dictated. And a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, Christians uh, have had or still leave the impression when they talk that every word in the Bible that the Holy Spirit dictated to somebody. Well, see, this... For the fellow that's not a Christian, but who's very studious, uh, they don't realize it, but they're performing a disservice to that man. Because that he's honestly trying to come at this and, and figure it out, and he can go to the Bible, and, and he can show that every writer writes with a certain vocabulary. And that you don't have to tell this uh, linguist scholar that the same person wrote Romans and Corinthians and Galatians. Uh, he'll, he'll take them and, and put them side by side and look at the figures of speech and the, uh, the idioms that are used and the, the method of writing, and he'll say the same author wrote each of those uh, three books. And so that when you try to say that the Holy Spirit dictated, 
Well, then he knows that the, vocab the four Gospels have four distinct vocabularies. And so they do a disservice. The Holy Spirit is responsible for seeing that we've got all the truth. And whenever God was revealing information that man did not know, then he needed revelations that he got by way of visions and dreams and direct statements from God. He put it down. But when man was an eyewitness of something, for example, when uh, John writes eyewitness material or Matthew, they don't need the Holy Spirit dictating every word to them. And the same is true with Moses. When Moses is writing about the events that he experienced, he doesn't need anybody dictate it to him. He just needs to sit down and, and write it, and he needs a good memory in the process, and, and that's it. And so what you have in the Bible, these writers, a lot of the Bible is, is eyewitness historical accounts. Some of it is, is where the author has gathered uh, the history and has evaluated it and put it in that particular form, and some of it is where the information has been given to him as, as a vision or a dream or a prophecy from God, and it's all there. And so it's all, it's all truth, and this person is being used to put it down. But it shouldn't disturb anybody, the fact that you can see that different individuals uh, actually put, had parts in it, and that uh, we would only be doing something that can be exposed if we try to show that, uh, that Moses just sat down and wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. I don't believe you can do that. I believe you can show that Moses is responsible for those, that material. And it goes back to that time, and you can also show, and this would be beyond our study tonight, you can also show that this material is truth in any way you can possibly examine it, through history, through archaeology, uh, through blending it with the rest of the Bible, uh, through any means available to you, this year will stand the test. And that's, that's the important thing. All right, now, Moses uh, is responsible from here, and then here, Joshua through Esther in the Bible, this is the uh, point here where we have the history of the Jews. Look at another color here. We have the history of the Jewish people right here, okay? Now, this is a period of history that covers from about 1500 B.C. to about 400 B.C. So you've got about 1100, 1,100 years of Jewish history covered in the books Joshua through Esther. Now, as you read this period of history, this is the history of Israel as they live under this law. In other words, just like we have a constitution, the best way to think of the law of Moses, it was the constitution. So the constitution is over here. Now, maybe a better way to think of it would be like we have a constitution, which is a document. And then we have a lot of laws based on those principles, okay? The, the real back basis of the Constitution of Israel was the Ten Commandments. That was it, the Ten Commandments. Then we've got a lot of peripheral material that comes out from that. And all of that together forms what we call the Law of Moses. And so this is the history of Israel as they live under this and carry out the commands of God and operate in keeping with those laws. Now... This material here, Job through Song of Solomon, is simply five books of five books of history. I believe the evidence indicates that Job happened about 2000 B.C., or about the time of Abraham. And I say the evidence that you seem to be at, uh, at the time of the patriarchal age, where the the father is the head of the household and offers sacrifices, as opposed to the Mosaic age, 
where you have the priest that would offer the sacrifices and all. And that all that we can see in this, in the way of the customs and things of that nature, it tends to point right about the time of, uh, of Abraham, or about 2000 B.C. All right, so Job writes this, and then in here we've got Psalms. Psalms, although we think of it as the work of David, most of it is the work of David, but there are Psalms by other writers. David lived about a thousand years before Christ, and so those are a collection of Psalms written by David at various times in his life. And, for example, in Psalms 51 is the psalm that David wrote after his adultery, after his rebuke, after his repentance, and the consequence, and we have Psalms 51, where David poured out his heart to God. Then there were other psalms where David wrote of his confidence in the providence of God. There were songs that he wrote after a victory in battle. There were songs that he wrote when he was depressed and all. And so out of the experiences of David's life come these psalms, and these psalms are written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And within these psalms, there are definitely some prophecies pointing the way to the Messiah. A good example is Psalms 2 and Psalms 22. But definitely statements pointing the way to the Messiah and the kingdom that would come. All right, these psalms, uh, psalms, which were psalms, were literally sung in the Jewish assembly, just like we sang our psalms. They were written, and, and a lot of times you'll read on the psalm that uh, the introduction will say, uh, composed to be sung to a ten-string instrument or an eight-string instrument or something like that. And so David, of course, was a harp player, and they literally were composed, and they were sung, and the harp was played, and that was part of their worship service. All right, now, uh, Proverbs, another book of poetry. Uh, again, all evidence points at uh, Solomon on that, that we have. The, the point is that uh, it's a book of wisdom. And what you have in Proverbs uh, is an individual who is, has two things going for him when he writes Proverbs. Number one, he's extremely well studied in the law of Moses. He knows God's law. Two, he's experienced a lot of life and observed. And through his experiences with life, he has observed that God's law is not right just because he says so, but God's law is inherently right. And if you don't do what he says, there's consequences. And if you do what he says, there's rewards. And, and he's observed, for example, that train up a child in the way it should go, and when he gets old, he won't depart from it. He had observed that as a general rule, people that train their children up in keeping with the law of God, they tend to reap that in the long run. He also had observed that people that didn't discipline their children reap certain consequences. And so he's got a lot of statements like that. So in Proverbs, what you have is <coughs> an extremely wise man in Solomon. The wisest, well, we've got the compliment from the Bible itself on his wisdom, who has observed life and who knows the law and then is making these observations. And so in Solomon, you have some very practical statements based on the observations of a wise man law. And God chose to make this. And I'm going to, we'll get around to showing how this happened. But I'm saying that when you read Proverbs, you're not reading where the Holy Spirit dictated every word there. But you're seeing a wise man who's made these observations. But the point is, God didn't want the Holy Spirit to dictate it. God wanted a wise man to live his life and make those observations, and the Holy Spirit is responsible for seeing that this becomes a part of the canon, and we'll see how in, in, a, in a little bit. But anyway, that's, that's Proverbs. And then we, so we've got Psalms, we've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, 
The Holy Spirit didn't sit down and, or some, nobody sat down and the Holy Spirit dictated every word of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, we have a man who's lived his life and he has pursued everything that you could pursue in the lust of the flesh. He's gone after riches. He's had a multitude of wives. He's had concubines. He's had houses. He's had parks. And of course, we're dealing with Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And he's a, he keeps going after all of this. And then when he, he gets it, he winds up saying all is vanity. It's nothing. It didn't satisfy him. And then all through this book, he keeps dealing with the fact that, hey, no matter how much money I've got, no matter how wise I am, there's one fate that befalls us all, the fool as well as the wise. That's what we're going to die. So he says, so you make a lot of money, and then you leave it, and you're, maybe you have a foolish son that just wastes it all. What's that accomplish? If you, if you gain all the wisdom in the world, how are you any better than the fool when you die? And then he goes on and makes the observation that a, that a, a, live, a live dog is better than a dead lion. And of course, a, a dog's the lowest thing that the Jew could look at in the, in the way of the, the animal kingdom. And so then, after doing all of this, he comes to the end of this book, and he comes to the conclusion that this is it. The whole of man is simply to, to reverence or fear God and keep his commandments. So this is a great truth. God has allowed that man to live his life. Make every mistake that you can make. Pursue the lust of his own flesh. Learn a lesson that God knew in advance he was going to learn. And then that's fine. Solomon, I'm going to make some use out of your miserable life. Sit down and write. And so Solomon sits down and, and he writes something that God wants carried down through the centuries. And, and who can try, who will have the opportunity to do everything that Solomon did? Anything that you can imagine. He had the ability to carry it out and do it came to the conclusion that everything was vanity, a striving after win, it was nothing, that the only satisfaction in life came out of your relationship with God and knowing that you were right in Him, and that the only happiness in life came to the degree that you kept in respect to the commands of God. And so that's Ecclesiastes. So God uses him to write Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of uh, Songs. You simply have a love relationship between a man and a woman. Pardon? Song of Songs. Song of Songs. To look it up in there. It could be either way. Either way. No, it could be Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, either one. Solomon wrote it, but you can, uh, you can, you can go either way on that. Uh, but anyway, that it's a love story between a man and a woman. And I don't, people argue about the various reasons for Song of Songs being an error, Song of Solomon, either way you want to refer to it. But there are several things that I, I believe it's good and uh, to read in any number of a number of reasons. I think young people that have not married, I think it's good enough. Uh, for example, in as we bring our children up as uh, Christians, that we uh, teach them a high form of morality, and you know, and the sexual thing is after marriage and everything like that. But sometimes we do such a good job that there are young people that get married and actually have problems in their relationship. It, uh, and uh, all of a sudden something that's been wrong and built up is wrong and has problems all of a sudden becoming right so that they can have a good relationship and fully give themselves to one another. More than Solomon of Solomon's can be uh, good, uh, among other things, is here is this relationship, the physical relationship between the man and woman and also the emotional relationship that's described and it's endorsed. And so here you have a physical relationship and, a, and, a, and an emotional relationship and all that goes through there and it's totally endorsed, and so I think it's good for people to sit out and see that uh, 
that uh, sex and the, the man-wife relationship and all of this, this is ordained by God. And it's part of the two, that's it, when it says the two become one flesh, that's exactly what it means. And that that's ordained by God, there's nothing unclean, there's nothing wrong, everything about it is good, and it, it has the opportunity to cause a close relationship and the production of children and, and to do things, to have something that you cannot have in any other relationship. And so I think that, uh, that it's good, and, and from the, the wholesome approach that, that it has towards it, and shows that just because people take and twist it and pervert it, that that doesn't mean that it's, it cannot be something that's wholesome in its proper setting. All right, now, in the, these books, Isaiah through Malachi, these are books of prophecy. Now, here's where the, we get to what most regard as the most complicated parts of the Old Testament. And really, it shouldn't be. It, all, it's, it should be the most faith-building parts of the Old Testament. Number one, let's notice several things. These books are not written in chronological order. We have what is called the five major prophets and the five minor prophets. Well, God didn't identify these prophets and say Isaiah is major and Hosea is minor. God, we just have uh, the books of prophecy there. That's all God has given us, the, the books of prophecy, and that's it. What we have done, we've taken the five writers who wrote the most, we call them major prophets. And the ones who wrote little books, we call them minor prophets. If we're going to do the same thing in the New Testament, then Paul would be a major apostle, and Peter a minor apostle. I don't know where Andrew would come in. But any, anyway, that we don't do that. But for some reason, somebody started that in the Old Testament, and, and I'm saying the whole idea of a minor prophet and a major prophet, and all in, in the arrangement of the books, uh, in this way, that's strictly the work of people. Uh, God didn't do it that way. They were just simply prophets. Now, another thing, these are not the only prophets in Israel. These are the writing prophets. Israel had a number of other prophets who did not write. Had more than, more prophets that didn't write than those that did. All right, now, these are not in chronological order, okay? And one of the reasons that it's difficult to understand when people read, I remember the first times that I read the Bible through you get to Isaiah, and then there's a lot there that's hard to understand, and nobody had ever sat down and explained it to me or put it in any kind of order. When you go through this history, you're reading in chronological order. And so you've always got the background for what you're going to do now, because you've got it over here. And you've read the Law of Moses, and so you can, you can sail pretty good through here and through here, and then you get to here and you bog down. Now, turn over to Isaiah in the first chapter. This is, you can do this with others, but it's, Isaiah makes a good one. And let's look at a key to understanding every last one of, of these prophets, at least one of the keys. You can't do this in, in, in exact with all of them, but uh, but you can with most, and this is helpful. Look at that uh, first chapter. Mark, would you start reading there, please, that first chapter, the first verse? The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of several kings. Okay, that's good. That's okay. The last one being Hezekiah, right? Joash, first, Hezekiah, last there. Okay, look what Isaiah has done to start with. He has identified the time frame that he did his prophecy during the reign of those kings. All right, now, he also told you, speaking concerning Judah, Jerusalem. Okay, now, when we look at uh, Isaiah, those kings that, that uh, you read about there, we've read about them over here in this history. Okay, we've read about Hezekiah over in 2 Kings, for example. 
And so we've read about them. So now, what we're going to have to do before we read Isaiah is go back over here to this history and read that period of history. In other words, if you was going to read this in the way that it should be read, the thing to do would be to, as you're reading this history, whenever you read about those four kings, that period of time frame, then sit down and read Isaiah. And realize that Isaiah preached in that time period. And here, here in reading it in the history, you have the historical basis. You know what's going on. You know whether that king is an ungodly reprobate or he's godly. You know the, the type of sins that are being committed by the people. And you know the interaction with the other countries and everything like that. You know who the dominant force is at this time of, of the other countries and everything. And so now with that historical background, you sit down and read Isaiah. Well, now Isaiah is a preacher of the law of Moses. That's his law. Just like we today are preachers of the New Testament, Isaiah was a preacher of the law of Moses. So the Holy Spirit didn't have to dictate all Isaiah's sermons. Isaiah studied the law of Moses. And in Isaiah 8, verse 20, in comparing himself to other prophets, people that claimed to be prophets that were not, he said, now, if they do not speak according to the law of the prophets, there is no light in them. And so Isaiah's telling you that they already see, those people had already had it proven to them that this was of God. And so he's telling you that the true prophets are going to preach to you just like what do we do today. We tell, you, we tell people the authority is the apostles' teaching, the New Testament. And anybody that comes along, like somebody comes along today, and he says that uh, homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle, you know, and, it, and we've got no right to say that that's perversion and things like that. But our mind says, Paul said that homosexuality was a perversion and a result of a reprobate mind that had turned away from God. And that's considered one of the sins they had to repent of to become a Christian. And so when he says that, we are looking at our standard, which is the, the New Covenant. And so if a preacher over here, say, in the Episcopal Church and the United Methodist Church starts ordaining those people, and they do, what do we do? We say, listen, that guy's doing something false. That if he doesn't teach what's in the New Testament, then he's speaking off the top of his own head. And you listen to him if you want to. But you can't listen to him with the authority of the Bible. He's speaking off the top of his head. So Isaiah does the same thing. They've got a lot of people out that are preaching falsehoods. And he's telling the people that the truth is the law of Moses. And if they're not speaking in keeping with this, then what they're telling you is, is absolutely false. And so Isaiah, now, if we sit down to read Isaiah, and we've read this history, and we've read the law of Moses, then we can sit down and read Isaiah and read it with a very high degree of understanding. Now, there's still something we can do, though, to help our understanding of Isaiah. Now, what I've said about Isaiah will be true with every prophet. There's still something we can do. We are studying a history book. Okay? We're studying Isaiah Rope and the other book. Now, what would you do if you got hold of a history, a historical work by Herodotus or Thucydides or some other historian from antiquity and here it is writing about some events that took place hundreds of years before Christ. And there's some things there that you don't fully understand. But what you would do, you would say, well, I'm going to have to learn something about the customs, the language, the idioms, and the other countries that are being talked about here. Because, you see, when we write, or when we talk, we always write on the basis that we assume certain information that those people already believe. And you're not going to tell something, somebody something that he already believes and knows and everything. For example, tonight, 
I had all kinds of assumptions as I got into this. Everybody here already believes in God. And so there's, we haven't, there's not been one shred of proof of the existence of God. There's no need to, because you already believe in God. There are other things that from our own study together, we've already have a common belief in a number. We all believe in the deity of Jesus and the resurrection and things like that. And so I'm operating with the assumption of that. And so therefore, if, we, if you were sitting here as an audience of atheists, I wouldn't have started on this lesson tonight. We started, started somewhere else. All right, the writer's right with assumption. And so when Isaiah writes, and the power to, that he's concerned about is Assyria, or whoever it may be, he doesn't feel the necessity to explain every little detail of what he's saying about them because everybody he's writing to already knows that. If you were a Jew in Isaiah's day, nobody had to tell you about those sword rattlers in Assyria and that they were scaring the whole known world to death. Nobody had to tell you that. You knew it, and you were scared. So he didn't explain anything to you. And a lot of things he would not have to explain to you. And so he would write with the understanding that you already knew certain things. Well, then if I'm going to fully understand Isaiah, I've got to do a little work with the history books. And uh, this is where, by the way, good commentaries can be very helpful. Because that commentary, if commentator, if he's a good one, he's already done some work with the history books. And somebody like Adam Clark, uh, Albert Barnes, uh, and, and again, neither one would I agree on every single solitary point. That's not, that's not the point of it. You're never going to find the commentator or the historian that you agree with on every, every single solitary point. But if you're waiting for that, then quit reading newspapers, quit watching newscasts, quit sending your kids to read out of textbooks in school because you will never find the magazine or the newspaper or the newscast where you're going to agree with everything that is there, but yet you recognize yourself as having the God-given intellectual ability to decipher through bias and, and, and discover the facts that are there. We all, we all recognize ourselves as having that ability when we want to. And so when we go back, somebody like Clark, he can be a tremendous help here. And so he has historical documents that you don't, but you can check him out anytime you want to. And you can, might, might even buy a lot of books because he uses them. But anyway, you can go back, whatever method, where you go back to the actual histories, or you go to good commentaries who have read the histories and, and check them out and all, these people can give you historical information that will enhance your understanding of Isaiah. Your interpretation of an event may be entirely different from theirs, and yet they can still help you by giving you historical information. In other words, that uh, you might, after they give this information, say, well, I differ with his interpretation, but yet you have still benefited from the information that he has given you on that, on that particular point. So when we go to the books, we say that this man wrote during this period of history here, we, we read that period of history, he's a preacher of the law of Moses, and he's preaching concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and then I need to familiarize myself with the history of that day, and I'm ready to understand that book. And then Isaiah is also pointing to a Messiah that's down the pike, and we're going to see that later on in the New, Test New Testament itself, and, and a lot of that won't be fully understood until we've read the New Testament. A lot of those prophecies of the Messiah uh, that you will not fully understand until we get and read the New Testament itself. So, why is it that everybody can sit down and just easily understand Isaiah? Well, a lot of times people will go to a Bible class and they're going to study Isaiah and they've never really made a serious study of the Law of Moses or they've never seriously studied 
that period of history they lived in. And then they think, well, man, that's, that's Greek or that's too hard. And so they don't, not a whole lot of people sit down and read Isaiah. And that's the shame because Isaiah is rich in prophecies of events that took place in the distant future that were fulfilled in meticulous detail, even to the point of calling men by name before they were even born, such as Cyrus and his defeat of Babylon and things of that nature, and all kinds of prophecies of the Messiah, so much so that we refer to him as a messianic prophet. And so many miss that richness because they're not willing to dig down and do all the studying and research that's necessary to benefit from that book. All right, what is true there is true also of these books. Okay, so we... We come now to the New Testament, and we've noted, now, let's ask ourselves the question. Why do we have these 39 books in the Old Testament? Now, first of all, I'll tell you, the Jew didn't have 39 books in the Old Testament. He had 22, but he had the same material. He divided the same material into 22 books that you and I divide into 39. And I point that out to show you that we have a lot of arbitrary divisions, just like Moses is responsible for this material. But Moses didn't sit down and name those books in, in the way we've got them and say, I'm writing five books or anything of that nature. And where we have First and Second Chronicles, you could just as easily have one book. First and Second Samuel can be one book. First and Second Kings. So we've got six right there that can be three. All right, now, let's look at this material. And why do we have it as part of the Bible and part of the canon itself? Well, here's some interesting things about it. Number one, when this was passed on by Moses to the Jewish people, as a matter of historical record, the Jewish people, the Israelites, pop into existence. They're there, and they're a force to be dealt with. And the Israelite people that had the most influence on the world of any country that ever existed, that's a historical fact. I don't care what anybody believes about anything, you cannot deny the fact that from the time the Israelites pop into existence, and coming on down, we'll just take them down to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. for our purpose in this study. There has never been a country to affect humanity like Israel. Israel got conquered by conquerors, and they affected their conquerors in the long run more than their conquerors affected them. And so here is this body of people, and they've got this book. And they believe those five books are inspired by God and that Moses was a prophet of God. The question, that's a historical fact. The fact that the Israelites believed that he was a prophet of God and he was inspired by God and that they reverenced that word and carried it all down through the centuries and even down to this present time, that is a historical fact. The question is, why did they believe it that strongly? We go back to all the miraculous that's involved in this, the delivering of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. If we're going to say the miraculous didn't happen, the, the delivery from Egypt and things of that nature didn't happen, we're going to have to ask the question, how do you take a, a whole nation of people and beginning with coming out of Egypt, they began to keep the Passover and they kept it every year since then. How does this happen? You know, the keeping of the Passover feast and they're leaving Egypt, and the reason for taking of the unleavened bread is it depicted the haste with which they leave. The bread didn't even have a chance to leaven. How do you get a generation to do that and to pass it all the way down unless this generation believes it without doubt? And, and I'm saying that you can prove that this first generation believed it without doubt in their mind, and they passed it on to the next, and they passed it on to the next. 
They also believed without doubt in their mind concerning the inspiration of that book. How did Moses convince them he was a prophet? How did uh, Hammurabi wrote a code of law that goes back 500 years before Moses? Nobody set him up as a prophet of God. So we know, even before we go any deeper, something caused those people to believe without any doubt in their mind that he was a prophet of God. We don't know, even those that are not believers will acknowledge that. Something caused them to believe it. Something caused them to reverence and respect that book. Something caused them to keep the Passover all down through the centuries. Something caused them to reverence those books and transmit them faithfully down through the centuries. So let me go back and look at these books. And a lot of interesting things there. To the degree that any of the historicity can be checked out through archaeology and other sources, it always stands. In the past, there have been parts of this that people put in the myth category and they said, well, nobody ever heard of the Jebusites and the Canaanites and, and, and some of the other, the, the Amorites, the Hittites. There's no record of the Hittites in history. Well, you won't hear anybody saying that anymore. Sargon the Great. All of that. You won't hear it. So we can say that to the degree that you can check it out, there's never been the first fallacy of a historical nature. We'll find some other interesting things. There's a health code in there. Okay? A health code. There's a book put out by a man by the name of S.I. McMillan. He has a Methodist background, a believer in the Bible, and a doctor. And the name of his book is None of These Diseases. I, I've had no telling how many copies, and I've given them all out and don't even have one now myself on that, but it's an outstanding book in the field of Christian evidences. He simply takes the health code of the law of Moses and shows that today, in the 20th century, you cannot improve on it. To really appreciate the health code and the law of Moses, you have to first be familiar with the ignorances of his day. Even that's 1,500 years before Christ. George Washington was killed by his own doctors bleeding him to death, thinking he was doing him a favor. Up until just a uh, a little over a century ago, doctors actually bled people, thinking we know now that, man, the last thing you want to do is take blood from a sick man, that it's the white cells in the blood that fight the disease, and that the blood carries nourishment to every cell of the body. We know that the life of the flesh is literally in the blood. Moses knew that. And so Moses wrote that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And never in all history are you going to find any Jew bleeding anybody to help them out. Louis Pasteur discovers something new in germs, revolutionizes medicine. Moses, 1,500 years before Christ, has the people practicing quarantine. That whenever you've got an ailment, you cover your mouth and you holler unclean. And you don't go around other people. And any kind of leprosy or skin rash or disease or anything like that, you got separated from the other people, and the priest come out and inspected you regularly, and you did not come among the others until you were clear of your rash. They were told to wash their garments in running water. We know now the water purifies itself when it runs. Nobody knew anything about germs then. They were told to pour the blood out. They didn't did not drink the blood like the pagans did. And another interesting thing to me, the Jew didn't eat the fat in the meat. No cholesterol problem. They did not eat the fat. The fat was burnt up, and the blood was poured out in the meat that they ate. There are other things given within the law. Suffice it to say, even some of the things now, now I don't want to leave the impression that I believe you're sinning if you eat some meat that was forbidden to them to eat. And I'll point out why. If you lived, in, if you lived today 
under the same circumstances that they did and the same knowledge, your best bet health-wise would be to follow that health code to perfection and not touch any of those meats that it says leave alone. And a doctor will tell you, and he doesn't, Macmillan does an outstanding job. No. Now, here's the difference. For example, when it came to the fish, they could eat the fish that had the fins, but things like oysters and those shellfish and all, they, they couldn't eat. That was, they, they were not supposed to touch that. Well, we know now that oysters and shellfish and, and, those, and certain types of fish, they began to decompose extremely quickly. And bacteria multiplies much more quickly than a regular flesh. But how do we compensate for that? Well, they didn't have ice back then. So what we do is we take oysters and, and all those different type things they can eat, and we simply put it on ice. And so we don't have it decomposing. But I'm saying if you did not have ice, you could not get that thing and that stuff in fast enough for people to eat. All right, now, when it comes to the animals, they had unclean animals and clean animals. If you want to put them in two categories, with a few exceptions, you have carnivorous animals, and then animals that just eat plants. The clean animals are those that just eat plants. All the unclean animals, like for example the birds, the hawk, the eagle, the falcon, unclean. The dove, clean. And so the birds that devoured other birds and, and, and carrion and whatnot were unclean. Any animal that ate other animals was unclean. Well, we can see, obviously, an animal, and this is interesting too when you study the animal kingdom, uh, the pig, obviously, is unclean. They don't eat anything. The dog was unclean. The dog eats meat. Any meat eater was unclean. All right. When you study about animals in the wild, although we often, you know, we picture these animals that just go out here like the lion and they get, get all the various the goodies to eat and everything like that, you know. But when you read about it, whether it's a wolf or a lion or, or whatnot, you know the animals they get mostly to eat? The sickly ones that can't get away. And are the dying ones, the ones that suffer in some sense. Now, they'll get some young. But really, the truth is that lion maybe doesn't get an abundance of healthy antelope. But that, that thing can outrun him. In fact, I, I read an article in National Geographic, and they did a whole series on the lion in Africa, and it had one lion that was dying. And it's just sitting over dying. And they, give the reason, they pointed out that in chasing an antelope, he'd been kicked in the mouth, and it broke his jaw, and he couldn't eat. So he was going to die. And he pointed out that the majority of the times when they go after the antelope, they, they simply don't get it. But anytime you have an animal that's sick and or diseased or, or something, well then obviously what, what does your dog do when he gets sick? He goes over and lays down. And a cat lays down. And when animals get sick, they just go lay down and go up by themselves. So these animals that eat other animals, what they're going to eat up all over the place, and it's a good thing from nature's standpoint, they're going to eat the, the sick ones. And then you've got the animals that eat the dying animals that are actually dead. Well, then you can see that obviously the potential for disease that this particular animal might be carrying, that he's perfectly immune to and, and serving his function within nature. But yet, if you limit yourself to animals that are healthy and eating vegetation and everything like that, then your chances of getting some disease is, is far, far less than in dealing with the other one. So what I'm saying is wrote something that is so far beyond the people of his day. And today we can't improve on it. And where I fully began to appreciate the health code and the law of Moses is when I read about the health practices at the time of Moses. For example, the number one killer in Egypt was lockjaw. If you had a severe cut on your arm in Egypt, 
They would have taken some lizards and turtles and some dung and other things and ground it all up together and just rubbed it in it. And, 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 and you'd have been better off if they never touched you. And if you did not have an extremely strong immune system, you're going to, you're going to die. Tetanus and all kinds of diseases that they had because, in fact, throughout history, doctors have killed more people than they helped. And a lot of times the people that live, live despite the doctor, not because of him. The health, healthiest thing you could have done in antiquity is run from the doctors. They, they literally kill people. And that's, and in fact, a lot of it going on today, but not quite like it was then. Well, all of these ignorances, I'm saying Moses came out of Egypt. And he was familiar with all those health practices and all those ignorances that they practiced. And they, he write anything like that in the health code. He wrote something that is so sublime that in all of antiquity you will never read it except in the law of Moses. And any people anywhere on the face of this earth who show the knowledge of those things that Moses writes, without exception, you can trace their content to the Israelites. Now, one of the best sources on this that I've read for tying it all together was the debate between Alexander Campbell and Robert Owen, an atheist. And I've got, I've, in fact, I've got that debate, Campbell-Owen debate. And what Campbell did is show that anywhere you find goodness, morality, righteousness on this earth, and things like we're talking about, invariably you, have, you find contact with the Israelite people or later on the Christians. You just simply do not find it without that kind of contact. All right, suffice it to say, now I just picked that out and zeroed in on it, but suffice it to say that not only is it historically accurate in every way that you check it, but it's got something such as a health code that we just simply cannot explain. And it's just amazing. Not only that, it's full of types and shadows that are carried throughout here and are fulfilled over here. Not only that, there are prophecies now. Here's the thing we've been to zero in. There are prophecies in here of events that are fulfilled here. Well, then as these prophecies were fulfilled, this would constantly reinforce the faith of the people in this. In other words, in Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, Moses has said, if you obey God, such and such and such will happen to you. If you disobey, such and such. Well, then you get over here, and these Jews begin to disobey, and everything happens, just like Moses said. But what do you think happens? The prophet comes along and said, hey, look, I've been telling you this. And so then we find people repenting and acknowledging that this way is right. Same thing happens today with, when we come to the morality of the New Testament. We go out here and we say, hey, it's wrong to use drugs, it's wrong to drink. It's this permissive attitude towards marriage is wrong, and, and people just go their own merry way, and then what happens? They suffer the consequences of drugs and drinking and, and permissiveness, and then who do they turn to? Multitudes of them come into the church, and, and they're looking for something because their life is a mess, and they're wanting help, and, and then when the preacher gets up there and he condemns this sin and tells them to repent, now they have the experience, and mentally they're dealing with that. They're saying, well, he's right. I know that's right because I've suffered the consequence of that kind of thing. So this happens through here, well, by the, in the same way, Moses spoke of the Messiah to come. And, and, and some other things concerning Jesus and the kingdom that will culminate here. All of this now becomes reasons why we will eventually acknowledge it. It's going to become, when we're through with the Bible, what you're going to have is a 66-piece, or however many books you want to divide it up to, we just divide it in 66. You're going to have a 66-piece puzzle that fits together like a glove, is what you're going to have. It'll it, it just blend together perfectly without any contradiction or anything of that nature throughout. throughout. All right, now, 
In this book of history, all we have is recorded history of events that's happening, the fulfillment of prophecies here, the prophets who are preaching, and in this history we have prophecies being fulfilled, and then prophecies pointing to the Messiah, and prophecies pointing on, on down in the future, and as these events took place, then they reinforced the people's belief in this, and then in the prophet, and, and this material, for example, this material is written either directly by the prophets that we read here, or it's material that the prophet picked up and had incorporated as part of the history itself. In other words, he brought it, that all of the material that we accept is material that has been endorsed and accepted by the prophets. Just like I said over the New Testament, why do we have Hebrews here? Because it was written to Christians and circulated at a time when there were apostles still alive in the church and it was universally accepted by the church as, as, in, as, as a book to be accepted and read and believed and as truth and endorsed by the apostles. And that's, that's the starting point. Then we look at Hebrews and it fits like a glove with the rest of the New Testament. It fits like a glove in explaining the, the Old Testament itself. There's no contradiction. Every, everything works hand in hand. And so that's why that it becomes part, part of the canon itself. Now, as we get through here, we wind up saying that this material has been handled by people who have been verified as being prophets of God. And they are the ones that are holding these, accumulating these books, these schools of prophets and all. And they are the ones that are accumulating and bringing it on down. And then the first time that we actually have all of them together as, as a unit, like we've got now, that we can go back to and concretely point to. They're all there. But the first time we get them as a unit recognized as such is in the Greek Septuagint that translated from the Hebrew into the Greek between 280 and 250 B.C. And that was translated by about 70 of the greatest Greek and Hebrew scholars among the Jewish people at that time. And now, notice something else now concerning the Jews. Between the Old Testament, Malachi, and the New, there's 400 years. The Jews write all kinds of material, but they don't accept it as part of the canon. Now, what this lets you know, that Jew didn't accept just anything as part of the canon. And when John the Baptist appears on the scene, by the way, we, let, we are let known, it's been a long time since there's been any vision in Israel. The Jew knew that unless the work was endorsed by a prophet, and see, they recognized a prophet by the fact that he said things that were fulfilled. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like unto me, and unto him shall you hearken. Now, if you say in your heart, when a man speaks, how shall I know whether or not it's from God? He said, If he speaks, and it follows not, he spoke it presumptuously. There's no light in it. The mark of the prophet is that what he said came to pass. And so the very fact you've got a 400-year gap with no Israelite adding anything to it, in and of itself lets you know the strong criteria that they had and recognized, and they would not accept anything that had not been handled by a prophet himself that had been credited among them as inspired by God. And notice also now, prophecies that are given in this period of time fall in three categories. There are those prophecies that are fulfilled in the lifetime of the prophet and serve as his credentials before the generation that he preaches to. There are those prophecies that fulfilled over a period of several generations, so that even after he died, that these prophecies would be fulfilled over here and over there, 
and they kept that book alive to the Jew of that day, to the Israelite, and, and kept him respecting it, reverencing it, and he was constantly being made to say, hey, this is inspired by God. So like when Cyrus came into Babylon, and he had conquered Babylon, the Medo-Persia, and the secular historians record how that the Jewish scholars, the Jewish priests met him, and showed him that Isaiah called him by name before he was even born, and prophesied of that event and all. And he was so amazed that he, that he wound up passing the edict to send the Israelites three and let them go home and rebuild their city. And that's a historical fact. That he passed the edict and sent them home and they rebuilt their city. And he actually supplied the resources and the finances to even do it. So there was that second type of prophecy. Then there was the prophecy down to the end of the ages. The Messiah, the forerunner, the king, the preparation of the kingdom, and the kingdom. That would culminate in the New Testament. You and I respect it because of the latter two. Those prophecies that was fulfilled in his lifetime, there's no way I could verify that. But on the other hand, the prophecies that were going to be fulfilled in the future, there's no way they could verify. So their faith depended on those prophecies fulfilled in their lifetime, and that's why they reverenced it and respected it and meticulously held onto those books and transmitted it. My faith in the miraculous that took place in his day is dependent on those long-range prophecies. Because I have, before I can concretely examine this historically, I've got to be able to prove that he wrote this here, and this happened over here. And until I can do that, and I have to have a time frame to operate within, I cannot prove. So I believe the short-range prophecy, because of the long-range, they believe the long-range because of the short-range. And we could go to specific statements on that in the Bible, but again, because of time, you know, we won't pursue that matter any further. Now we come to the New Testament, and you've got the four Gospels, and Matthew starts by saying Abraham, and he comes from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. The first thing that pops into our mind is that over here in Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham that of three promises, two of them has already been fulfilled. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed. Two of them has been fulfilled. Matthew is out to show you that the promise that God made to Abraham of one of his descendants to come, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through, is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are there as four biographies. Uh, Matthew and John are giving you an eyewitness account. Luke tells you that he lived at that time, but he's writing as a historian who's examined the other eyewitnesses and all the materials available to him. And you're getting the work of a historian that lived at that time. Mark, in the first century, Mark's gospel is referred to as the gospel of Peter according to Mark. The preaching of Peter recorded by Mark. And so that gives us our four gospels. The book of Acts, the history of the church, takes up right where this leaves off. This shows the fulfillment of all these prophecies and types and shadows here. This continues the entire process. Paul writes these letters to churches that he has established primarily. Again, these letters ought to be read over here when you're reading Acts. And by the way, a, a Bible that uh, I'm going to get, haven't got yet, uh, but the uh, Narrator's Bible, you can get it in NIV, puts all of these letters in historical order. In other words, as Paul writes a letter to the Philippians, it'll give it, you know, you'll be reading Acts, and it'll stop at that place and give you the letter to the Philippians. And then, by the way, it puts the entire Bible in a chronological, sequential type order. And so these letters are written out of that history.